Hello, and welcome to Decision Points, the U.S.-Israel relationship. My name is David Murkowski, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute and the Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations, and I'm excited to go on this journey through history with you. This episode focuses on President Dwight Eisenhower's administration in the 1950s and how its relationship with the new state of Israel hit what analysts would still consider many decades later as the lowest point in history. The immediate catalyst was the 1956 Suez Crisis. It was a dramatic period. Like many administrations, the Eisenhower administration wanted to draw a sharp contrast with its predecessor. Ike wanted to show he's no Truman. He and his top advisors would tell other countries that Truman was drawn by American domestic political support in recognizing Israel, but he would be different. The objective of the plan was to persuade the Arab states to support the U.S. in the Cold War against the overarching enemy, the Soviet Union. This meant that ensuring that the U.S. is aligned with the quickly rising post-World War II force in the Middle East, Arab nationalism, led by the charismatic Egyptian leader Gamal Abdel Nasser. Eisenhower hoped Nasser would be the linchpin of an anti-communist U.S.-Middle East strategy. The U.S. perception was encapsulated by Kermit Roosevelt of the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA. In a cable from Cairo to the CIA director, Alan Dulles, Roosevelt wrote, quote, Nasser remains our best, if not our only hope here. At the same time, the British were negotiating their withdrawal from Egypt, where they had been stationed since 1882. Prime Minister Winston Churchill wanted Eisenhower's help, so ensuring that Britain would maintain a base on the Suez Canal, given its strategic position, facilitating trade between Europe, Asia, and Africa. However, to Churchill's chagrin, the U.S. did not favor their British allies, holding out hope that Nasser would join the U.S. side in the Cold War. And to this end, despite funding from part of the Soviet bloc, then Czechoslovakia, to Egypt, Eisenhower decided to go forward with funding a project that Nasser wanted desperately, and that was the Aswan High Dam. However, Nasser's closeness to the Soviets persisted. And on July 19th, due to congressional concerns, Secretary of State Dulles canceled all funding for the Aswan Dam. Nasser retaliated a week later by announcing that he would nationalize the Suez Canal. Britain, France, and Israel were immediately irate at the declaration, which they saw as compromising their security and financial interests. The British, French, and Israelis secretly convened in France to discuss military intervention. On October 24, 1956, the three countries signed a secret protocol which committed Britain and France to military action after initial attack on the canal by the Israeli Air Force. With passage through the Suez Canal imperiled, England and France issue a ceasefire ultimatum to Egypt and Israel. Egypt rejects it. Flying from Cyprus, English and French paratroopers lead a joint air-sea assault against Port Said at the canal's northern end. The troopers leap out into Egyptian Akak. Smoke rises over the vital waterway. After a softening up by Anglo-French bombers, the seaborne invasion begins. Fighting is heavy in Port Said, where the Egyptians make a determined last stand. But the conquest of the city is completed in two days. The attack occurred on October 29th. And as agreed, the French and British joined after issuing pre-planned and feudal ultimatums to both sides. 
after the first strike, Eisenhower, learning what his allies had done behind his back, had to choose between his natural Western allies and the Arab nationalists. I doubt that any delegate ever spoke from this forum with as heavy a heart as I have brought here tonight. We speak on a matter of vital importance where the United States finds itself unable to agree with three nations with whom it has ties, deep friendship, and two of whom constitute our oldest, most trusted and reliable allies. One urges as a matter of priority that all parties now involved in hostilities in the area agree to an immediate ceasefire. Eisenhower even wrote a letter to friends blaming Israel for the move, even though it was France that spearheaded it. During those very days, the Soviet Union rolled its tanks into Hungary, but Eisenhower was fixated on Suez. When asked why he's more adamant about Suez than the Soviet invasion of Hungary, he simply said, two wrongs don't make a right, end quote. So to understand Eisenhower's anger, how the U.S. reaction after Suez plunged the U.S.-Israel relations to a new low, and how it boosted Nasser to be the leading figure in the Middle East, with all the consequences that would flow, we are joined today by Michael Duran, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He is the author of Ike's Gamble, America's Rise to Dominance in the Middle East. It's a, it's a very fascinating book. And Michael, I'm glad that you're here with us. Thanks for having me. So can you explain, Michael, Eisenhower's anger about the Suez crisis at the end of um, October 1956? And what consequences did this reaction have for the U.S.-Israel relationship? Well, thanks. I, I thought your summary put it together nicely. I mean, Eisenhower's attitude reflected the collective attitude of the foreign policy elite, which believed that Truman's recognition of Israel was one of the greatest foreign policy blunders in the history of the United States because it alienated the Arabs. The goal, they thought, the goal was to uh, organize the Arab states in the Cold War to maintain the Western position. And the elite, which means just about everybody in the State Department, White House, Defense Department, intelligence agencies, with a, with a couple of notable exceptions, believed that Israel and Britain were, and this is in the words of uh, John Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State, millstones around our neck, that we were so alienating Arab, the Arab nationalism was rising and our association with Britain and Israel was alienating the Arab world in general and making it impossible for moderate leaders like Abdel Nasser to align with the U.S. And Suez epitomized the greatest fears of the Americans, that there would be a, an alliance between West European imperialism and Zionism against Arab nationalism, and the U.S. would be implicated in it. The great irony is that Eisenhower had all but lost hope in Abdel Nasser, the man, by the time the Suez crisis began. But he was still still fearful uh, on the basis of this you know, analysis of the elite, still fearful of being associated with Zionism and imperialism. So he gets angry. Why does he seem to put a lot of the blame on Israel when you, know, you had much bigger powers? And clearly France, I mean, I think from what I, I understand from your book and from other sources, you know, they wanted this attack before Eisenhower's reelection because they feared that Eisenhower was going to go off and do detente with the Soviet Union and the second term would be different. It seems that France is pushing this, but yet it seems that Eisenhower, from the letters he wrote to people, 
he thought this was done by Israel somehow to thwart his reelection. I think he read it pretty clearly. He was really livid with the British and French. He was also angry with the Israelis. What he thought was that the Europeans cooked this up because they believed that he wouldn't oppose allies and especially Israel on the eve of an election. And I think I didn't go into this deeply in the in the book, but I think the the British calculated made just exactly that calculation on the basis of their experience in the 1948 war. In the 1948 war, they were on the side of the Arabs against Israel, or they were tilting in the direction of the. They they wanted a much smaller Israel than actually emerged, and they couldn't get the Americans to line up with them in 48. And they interpreted that then because it was an election year. And, you know, Truman and Dewey were were out competing each other for the Jewish vote. So they calculated that the same kind of dynamic would be at work in 56. Eisenhower felt stabbed in the back by the Europeans in particular. So you're saying his anger for the Europeans was no less uh, than it was towards Israel. I think probably even more. I think because I think he expected more from them. He came down exceptionally hard on the British. Walk us through the aftermath. OK, the war happens. Eisenhower is reelected in 56. This Hungary thing happens, but he's focused on this issue. He kind of sees Hungary as part of the Eastern Bloc anyway, so he can't do much. But on Suez, he says, this I could reverse. So walk us through what Eisenhower actually does with the Allies. So the Hungary business is important, I think, in understanding his anger because he thought, here's the Soviet Union acting in an imperialist fashion and uh, crushing the popular will of the Hungarian people. And the U.S. can't capitalize on it from a propaganda point of view because the, the British and the French are doing the same thing, seemingly. I mean, he sees he's kind of understanding global politics as a global election campaign in an effort to win over the third world. It's not simply the Arabs. It's in all of the former colonial peoples. He's worried about uh, the West looking like the aggressors in that contest. And so what he does with the British is he tells the British and the French, he sends, once he realizes what they've done, he sends Dulles up to the General Assembly because the British and the French have a, have a veto in the Security right. Council. He sends them uh, Dulles up to the General Assembly and they get a resolution to have the, uh, an immediate and unconditional withdrawal of the British and the French from Egypt. And then what happens is Nasser very cleverly sinks tugboats filled with concrete into the Suez Canal, blocking the flow of oil to Europe through the canal. At the same time, he's got allies. There's a pipeline that goes across the Mediterranean from Iraq and Syria, and his Syrian allies blow up the pipeline. So all of the oil of Europe comes from the Middle East. So their, their oil supplies are cut off. And Britain has only two weeks of oil to fuel its economy in Britain. And Anthony Eden, who's now the prime minister, Churchill is, uh, is retired. Eden turns to, to Eisenhower and says, can we have North American supplies of oil? And Eisenhower says, no, not unless you get out of Egypt immediately and unconditionally, you know, unless we give Nasser a total victory, basically. And the value of the pound starts to plummet. And Eden is looking at total financial ruin for Britain. And so he has to immediately withdraw, give Nasser a victory. And he also has to retire from politics. I mean, that's the end of Anthony Eden's career. And what does he do with Israel? I mean, because this is, it's really hardball politics in every Palestinian you talk to will say, I wish America would act like Eisenhower, <laughs> twist Israel's arm so hard it would fall off. And so if U.S.'s relations was like a Dow Jones, you know, this would be 
the depths of the of the bear market here. Give our sense of our list to our listeners of how does Eisenhower react towards the Israelis? Well, the Israelis are have occupied Sinai. And Eisenhower wants to roll them out of Sinai, and he wants to roll them out basically the way he rolled out the British and the French, and tells Ben-Gurion that you have to withdraw. Now, imagine you're Ben-Gurion at that moment, because the Soviets played this much wiser than the Americans, much more, and much more shrewdly. When they saw that, that Eisenhower was serious about clamping down on his own allies, then they started grandstanding. Because they realized that any position they took was totally free. They didn't, weren't going to have to be held responsible for it. So after they saw that how serious Eisenhower was about driving the British and French out, they threatened Britain, France, and Israel with nuclear annihilation if they didn't get out. So they captured the Palestinians and Arab nationalist uh, vote throughout the region because to the guy on the street in the Arab world, it looked like Nasser, together with Moscow, was driving the British and the, and the French out. So, But imagine you're Ben-Gurion because then you've got Eisenhower barreling down at you and saying, get out immediately or face economic sanction and the Soviets threatening you with nuclear annihilation. But Ben-Gurion, the comparison with Eden and Ben-Gurion is very interesting. The Americans couldn't threaten Israel with immediate financial ruin the way they could threaten the, the British because they, they just didn't have that kind of control over the Israeli economy like oil gave them over Britain. But also, Ben-Gurion played it smarter. When Eisenhower told him, get the hell out and get the hell out now, he wrote back and said, yes, absolutely, and then took one step back. And then 2,000 years of Talmudic teaching and Talmudic disputation in Jewish culture began to help Ben-Gurion because there began the negotiation about what's a withdrawal, when does a withdrawal begin, when does a withdrawal end, and he kept— he, he, And how far to withdraw. And how far to withdraw. Does it include Gaza? Yeah, it does. Yeah, and so he kept taking steps backwards and always telling Eisenhower, yes, 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 but always arguing with him all along the way. And he got very little from this, but he managed to, to, to want to prolong the withdrawal. It, it went on for months. So by mid-January, Eden has collapsed. Ben-Gurion holds out till March. And he manages to wrest a few concessions from the Americans, which I can talk about in a second. But I think it's interesting that there's a very fascinating exchange that took place between Ben-Gurion and Moshe Dayan, who was the, the head of the IDF. And the Israeli Defense Forces. And Ben-Gurion says, okay, I pushed Eisenhower as far as I can. Eisenhower went on television National, national TV and gave a speech, an anti-Israeli speech in which he said Israel's policy is undermining, the, is destroying the United Nations, right? It's undermining U.S. national security. And he threatened to throw Israel out of the U.N. And he was also threatening economic sanctions. And through back channels, very staunch supporters of Israel in Congress, like Lyndon Johnson, told Ben-Gurion that they couldn't, after that they couldn't support him much more. So Ben-Gurion decides, he tells Moshe Dayan that He's pushed Eisenhower as far as he can, and they're going to have to make a concession, a big concession now. And Diane tells him, look, we did a study in the IDF, and we can withstand these American economic sanctions for at least six months. So let's hold out. Why drop to our knees and, you know, why drop to our knees and, uh, and surrender without a fight? Let's at least fight. You know? It's very interesting that Ben-Gurion says, no, I pushed them as far as I can, and our Conflict with Egypt is not over. We're going to have another round. And when we have that next round, we're going to need the United States. So I cannot afford to alienate him. And that was extremely wise, I think. And uh, knowing Ben-Gurion had this uncanny ability to to know just how annoying he could be. Well, like having written a a book with a huge Ben-Gurion chapter, I mean, 
That was Ben-Gurion's prescience. You know, he could see around corners and he was always looking beyond today. What was the commitment of Dulles to Ben-Gurion in the Golden May year? He made a trip saying that to keep the waterway, what's called the Straits of Tehran, you know, which from the Red Sea to Israel's southern tip of Elat, to keep that open, which Israel ends up getting most of its oil at a certain point from the Shah of Iran. But what did Dulles promise Israel about keeping international waterway open and ensuring that Nasser does not blockade it again? Yeah, so I think the Israelis had three major concerns that they were negotiating when under pressure to withdraw. One, as you say, was the Straits of Tehran, which is their maritime gateway to the, to Asia. The second was the use of Gaza by the Egyptians as a base for carrying out terrorist attacks. And the third was the militarization of the Sinai and the thre- the military threat. There's just the regular the threat from the Egyptian army from Sinai. So they wanted they Sinai want- is the buffer. For those of us, the listeners who don't know the geography. Sinai is the buffer, really, uh, between Israel and Egypt. And so they wanted Sinai as a buffer. They wanted the Egyptians not to have control of Gaza so that they could get, so they wouldn't be sending all of these uh, Palestinian terrorists into Israel. And they wanted the Straits of Tehran open. And the Americans gave them support for a UN buffer force in Sinai and political support uh, with regard to the, the Straits of Tehran political and diplomatic support. So saying if Nasser ever remilitarized the Sinai or he closed the Straits of Tehran, the United States would come and help Israel. Now, the Israelis didn't like this because these were not concessions from Nasser. The UN buffer force that was put in place. He could get rid of it, which he he ended up doing in 67. Because they were there as, he could present the UN buffer force to his own people as protecting him from the Israelis. They were there at his pleasure. This was not an order from the Security Council. And the Israelis wanted, you know, they wanted those three things, but they also wanted the world to see that Egypt paid a price for his former belligerents. So they wanted him to have to make certain concessions, and he never had to make any concessions. So that that gets me to that next point, which is Nasser, in a certain way, he loses the war, but he wins the peace in a certain way because Israel blitzes through the Sinai within 100 hours, joins up with Britain and France. Eisenhower gets angry and he kicks everyone out. But while Nasser lost on the ground, he's a hero in the Arab world. Nasserism really takes off like a rocket ship because, you know, I think one of the main themes of your book is that Eisenhower gives victory to Nasser in a silver platter, which you might argue there's a reason for it, but he doesn't extract anything in return. Nothing. Nothing. And the victory that he gave him was was huge. It was unbelievable. That's Ike's gamble. That that was the thing is that we'll we'll make these concessions to Nasser and it will work to, to our advantage. And we'll it's all based on the principle that they came in with. Very simple idea that we're alienating the Arabs by being too close to Israel. If we show the Arabs that we're not close to Israel, they will come toward us. And the, the exact opposite happened. So that's the irony in the whole story. Nasser, although he, you know, he gets this rocket fuel boost from Eisenhower, instead of saying, okay, the Americans helped me here, I'm going to be more pro-Western, he gets closer to the Soviets and he topples all these pro-Western Arab regimes in the Middle East. So how is it that Eisenhower doesn't see it coming? Because, you know, he, he doesn't have a lot of experience in the Middle East. And this is what all of the experts told him. All of the experts were either 
themselves descendants of U.S. missionaries in the Middle East, or they have been trained by the missionaries. And the missionaries all all believed that Zionism was undermining the American position all across the, the region. And they had turned this into a very simple strategic argument that the Arabs want independence. Arab, Arabs don't like imperialism. They don't like Zionism. These are true statements, of course. And the association of the United States with Israel is alienating Arab opinion. That's all true. But what's missing from that calculation is the fact that Arabs are in conflict with one another, with each other, in all sorts of complex ways. And that's the thing that they are primarily concerned with. They understand that we have these beliefs about our own, this own guilt about imperialism and this guilt about Zionism, and that that can be useful for manipulating us in certain ways. But their primary concerns are are elsewhere. Exactly. And so Nasserism gets this huge boost. Eisenhower comes to the view in your book and in others, you know, after uh, a toppling, I think, in, in, in Lebanon in 58, that uh, what have I done here? What have I – I've just created this force that I was hoping I could harness it against the Soviets in the Cold War, but it is turned in a direction I didn't expect. You really sense he has regrets and Peter Rodman's book, there's a whole scene there too, like when he's in retiring and already in Gettysburg that he, he rethinks 56. How do you see that? There are three major statements of regret that Eisenhower makes or that people testify to. One is he told an American conservative Jewish political activist that he regretted that Suez was the biggest mistake of his career. Um, people kind of discount that because they say, well, Eisenhower you know, told everybody what they like to hear, which is true. This is what this guy wanted to hear, so that's what he told them. But then Nixon says that Eisenhower really regretted Suez, and it was his biggest mistake. And Nixon says this repeatedly, and he wrote letters to British statesmen saying that, to British newspapers saying it. He wrote it in his memoirs and so on. And then also in 67, and by the way, that was after 67 when Israel, well, actually, let me tell you the story of the, the, the third statement of regret is to the Israeli ambassador in 67, the ambassador of the United States in 67. When Nasser remilitarized... Abe Harman, was it? Yes. Egypt remilitarizes the Sinai and closes the Straits of Tehran. And the Israelis turn to, to Johnson, President Johnson, and they say, Remember that commitment that Eisenhower and Dulles made to us. Will you come to our assistance in reversing what Nasser has just done? And Johnson says, "Commitment? What commitment?" I'm, you know, starts pulling up the cushions in the in the couch in the in the in the White House and says, "I'm looking for it. I can't find it anywhere. I don't know what you're talking about." Didn't the Rostows uh, have to go to Gettysburg, where Eisenhower was retired. Oh, it's Harmon goes to to Gettysburg. Harmon talks to Eisenhower and he says, you remember that commitment you made? And Eisenhower says, yes. And he said, will you come out publicly and uh, affirm that you made that commitment? And he says, of course I will. And then the next day they orchestrate a press conference and they plant a question to Eisenhower. Sir, did you make such a commitment? And he says, yes, I did. So, you know, putting pressure on Johnson to actually honor it. But in the process, Eisenhower tells Harmon that he really regretted the, the, the pressure that he put on the Allies in 56. I find this all totally credible because of the reversal in U.S. policy that takes place, as you said, in 58. Once you have the events in Lebanon and especially in Iraq, there's a revolution backed by Nasser in Iraq, and the Western position in the Middle East pretty much collapses. And Eisenhower realizes at that point that this whole idea of aligning with Arab nationalism had been a huge loser. If it was a nationalism that, that would have really steered maybe a more neutral course, it would have been one thing. 
But it seems that Nasser pocketed what Eisenhower gave him and just moved closer to the Soviets and was keen on toppling these pro-Western regimes. Oh, that's exactly right. The image that the Americans had in their mind when they were moving in this direction, I think, were countries like India and Yugoslavia. I mean, there are two kinds of, there's two kinds of neutralism in the Cold War. There's neutralism for the Soviet Union and there's neutralism for the United States. So Indian neutralism and Yugoslav neutralism, they work to the advantage of the United States because they, they put a break on the expansion of the Soviet Union. And they thought that's what Arab nationalism was going to be. They didn't care. I mean, we if you think about it from all the United States wanted from the Middle East at this time was that its oil flow to Europe. The number one goal of the in the Cold War strategy was to get Europe up on its feet the reconstruction of Europe, that was everything. And Europe needed Middle Eastern oil to do that. And they feared that if they alienated the Arabs, the Arabs would align with the Soviet Union and they would hold, they would withhold oil to Europe and hold European reconstruction hostage. So that's all we wanted. It didn't matter what political orientation these regimes took so long as they didn't cooperate in the security realm with the Soviet Union and possibly take control of the oil resources. This was fascinating. I I just want to thank you for your time. You really, I think, illuminated a period that is forgotten in in American foreign policy and U.S.-Israel relations, and uh, very grateful to you. Thank you. My takeaway was how Eisenhower was missing the whole dynamic of inter-Arab politics. His advisors were basically people who were who served as missionaries in the Middle East and who came back and basically felt, look, they just don't like Zionists. They don't like other minorities in the Arab world. But what they were missing was a little bit of the geopolitics, that there were differences within the Arab world, that the Arab world was not monolithic and that there were more pro-Western regimes and less pro-Western regimes. Eisenhower was essentially empowering Nasser, who was out to topple these pro-Western regimes, but he didn't realize that when he was empowering him in the aftermath of Suez. It was only after Nasser moved on Lebanon in 1958, two years after Suez, that Eisenhower realized, wow, what have I done? And that is leads us to the the quotes of Eisenhower at Gettysburg after he retired, that he didn't fully comprehend the phenomenon he was dealing with. And it was only in retrospect that he did. So I think it's always a good lesson for all of us, never to assume people are a monolith, try to understand, do a deeper dive. And if Eisenhower would have done that, he would have come across with a better appreciation of some of these very crucial nuances that indeed the Arab world was never and is not now a monolith. Thank you all very much for listening. I would urge you also to look at the book that Dennis Ross and I wrote called Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. A lot of declassified material coming both from State Department archives and the archives of Israel. Please go to your favorite podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell your friends. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible. Basha Rosenbaum, Richard Myron, and Anouk Millet of Earshot Strategies, Paul Woody Woodhull of District Productive on Capitol Hill, 
Scott Boxer, Rena Wasserstein, and David Patkin. <laughs>